welcome to the third podcast of American History 2. Uh, I'm Mark McClay and I am joined once again by my co-host, Dr. Malcolm Craig. Hello again, Mark. So Malcolm, it's just the two of us again. Uh, do you think we're going to get through this alone? I'm, I'm sure we'll, we'll manage, manage to do it. Maybe lacking the intellectual vigour that Jane brought to our discussion of the yeah, Constitution. I've, seen, I've seen, seen compliments of her great radio voice, but nothing about how ours. Um, so Americans always seem better at talking. I don't know what it is. And uh, stereotypes aside, let's move swiftly on. Exactly. So, uh, and anyway, it's not just the two of us. Today we're joined by General Andrew Jackson, um, who I don't think it's too much going out on too much of a limb to say is one of the most controversial figures in American history. Uh, he was the seventh president of the United States between 1829 and 1837. In his time, he was loved um, just enough uh, so that he would be elected twice, um, although he would probably argue three times, as he feels he was robbed one of the elections in 1824. And he was also hated. He was held up as a leader who allegedly brought democracy to the common man, um, and he was the first frontiersman to hold the nation's highest office and the man who brought death and suffering to thousands of Native Americans. Jackson has been assessed, reassessed, rehabilitated and denigrated by historians, and to this day he remains a man who inspire, inspires admiration in some and loathing in others. Uh, I think you're quite right about that, Mark. I mean, I think alongside Richard Nixon, uh, Jackson remains one of the most controversial of American presidents. And hopefully today we'll be, give a, be able to give some idea of why this is the case, particularly in the context of his attitudes towards Native Americans. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting you make the Nixon link. I mean, in, in Jackson's defence, he will score slightly higher in presidential rankings by historians than Tricky Dick will. Oh, absolutely. I mean, yeah. most polls of presidential greatness or presidential success consistently placed uh, placed Jackson much higher than Nixon. Yeah, Jackson's kind of in that second tier. Uh, like in terms of how historians rank him, you have like, you know, you have your Lincolns, your Washingtons, your Jimmy Yons. Carters. No, not Jimmy Carters. Jimmy Carter's generally actually down where Nixon is, if that's if that's any help. But uh and say jokes aside, uh I mean Jackson's kind of in that second tier um of, of presidents who are seen as very good. Your tape of Teddy Roosevelt's but perhaps not great. Um so, before we kind of dive into the heart of the controversy where we're kind of going to look at Jackson's uh, policies uh, regarding Native Americans, uh, since our last podcast ended, uh, you know, we had the creation and the ratification of the Constitution, we have a United States. Whoop. Um, in no more than two minutes, Malcolm, so I'm certainly we challenge here, what's been going on in the United States since then? Uh, I think in that case, in two minutes, we should probably think about the United States foreign relations, the political landscape and what's happening more widely in economy and society. In terms of foreign relations, uh, one of the major events is the War of 1812, uh, which starts in 1812 uh, and is fought between America and Great Britain. Who and wins that? Well, there's a good question. The United States think they won, the Canadians think they won, and the old adage is that Britain doesn't even know what was involved because they were fighting Napoleon at the time. Ah. Uh, but essentially what the War of 1812 does is it gives a genuine sense of American identity. Uh, I think people like uh, Frank Cogliano uh, have argued quite persuasively in favour that it is a formative event creating a genuine sense of patriotism, nationalism. Second War of Independence. A second War of Independence, yeah. almost. So we have that. Now, in the political landscape, one of the major things that the War of 1812 does is kills the Federalist Party. Hmm. The Federalists die out because the majority of them were anti-war and in the aftermath of the war, they're seen as unpatriotic. In the aftermath of American success... 
They're seen as unpatriotic, not committed to the United States. For this and other reasons, the Federalist Party dies. And we enter what's known as the era of good feelings. That sounds lovely. Which is essentially uh, a one-party system in the United States. Uh, and that one party is the Democratic Republicans. Confusingly named for those of us who are used today to the Democrats and the Republicans, they are, are quite different, and we'll probably talk about this more in future podcasts. Yeah, definitely. But it's a one-party system that only really comes to an end in the mid-1820s. And finally, there are wider changes happening within the United States under the, the blanket term of the market revolution. Uh, and this is essentially a transportation revolution, a communication revolution, an urban revolution, and a labour revolution. In terms of transportation, you have turnpikes, railroads, uh, and canals, most importantly, in the early market revolution. The telegraph has come in, instantaneous communication. Uh, cities are getting bigger, more people are living in them, and labour patterns are changing. Uh, what America is making, and manufacturing, and the resources they need to do that are changing. So, in many ways, it kind of parallels the industrial revolution that happens in Britain, uh, and has all these kind of wider consequences. And this is all happening at the same time. That was that was impressive. <laughs> um, okay, so you've kind of given us the background to the, the, the context that you know Andrew Jackson is arriving in. Although, as you as I'm as I'm just about to ask you, I mean Jackson's hardly anonymous during that that uh, period you just outlined. I mean, so what about him himself? I mean, I kind of bar the headlines. You know, it's a guy that owned a hundred slaves, a slave owner. You know, he's very well known for hating the British with a burning passion, which, you know, hardly, you know, puts him in the minority in the United States at this time. And, you know, I know that he's the first frontiersman, essentially, to become president, which is quite a change from, you know, the revolution-making, the constitution-creating Virginia and New England intellectuals who've come before him. That's correct, right? Yeah, I mean, he's one of the, the new generation of politicians that comes out of the War of 1812 that I just mentioned. And there's other people like who will become very notable, Henry Clay, John C. Calhoun, William Henry Harrison, Jackson himself. Uh, they all come out of the War of 1812. A lot of them uh, have been in military or political roles and had great, gained great fame out of the war. Jackson being one of the most notable examples of this. Uh, and he is a frontiersman. He comes from the West, or the West as it is constituted in the United States at this point, not the Far West. So give us a kind of idea of the states you're talking about when you mean the West. So Tennessee. Okay, so right uh, now, really not the West. Not the, not the West. <laughs> it is the West for the United States yeah. at that point. But when we think about the West in cowboys and wagon trains and all that kind of thing, it's not that West we're talking about. Yeah. So he's, he's on the frontier. He's a Tennessean. He rises to fame in the War of 1812. And one of the things he is known for is as an Indian fighter. Uh, okay. He, in the Red Sticks War uh, with the Native American tribe, the Creeks, he wins that. And then he's most famous for winning the Battle of New Orleans, which takes place two weeks after the peace treaty has been signed with Britain during the War of 1812. Obviously, communication being what it is, the peace treaty news has not reached the United States. Yeah. So the greatest US victory is won by Jackson after peace has been agreed, which is one of the reasons why the United States think they won the War of 1812. So is it fair to say that, I mean, besides maybe George Washington, Andrew Jackson's the first kind of national military hero in, in the United States, you know, if, if is, is Jackson... Admired. Yeah, I mean, he's certainly known as a, as a military hero and as a leader and a fighter uh, and all that kind of thing. He's one of the, the only presidents we can point to and say he definitely killed men with his own hands. Yeah, oh, definitely. Um, I mean, is, is there any... I mean, Jackson doesn't just stop killing people after the, uh, the War of 1812. He, you know, he gets involved in other conflicts as well, yeah. 
Um, well, he's a noted duelist. Uh, he's always fighting with people. He, he, he takes offence very easily, uh, both to his person, his ideals, his honour, and also if anyone offends his wife, uh, who Jackson fights many duels. We're not sure how many, uh, but he's considered a pretty, pretty deadly shot, a pretty tough opponent. Mm -hmm. uh, so he's quite a combative figure, quite an aggressive figure. And that's that's kind of borne out by the name Old Hickory. You know that that's that's the nickname Jackson gets from his you know the troops that fight with him. I think it's kind of it, I don't know if it's in New Orleans or if it's slightly before that in Indian fighting that he gets that. And obviously Jackson as well. You know more than any other president wins Florida. You know in a sense like but not in the sense that he won their electoral votes in the sense that he went down there and you know killed a lot of Indians and True. the Seminole War. And it's kind of that's during the presidency of James Monroe when and it's sort of. Historians, I think, still debate whether Monroe gave him permission or not. He mm. sort of sends him a telegram that says, well, you could take Florida, but if, you know, I'm not telling you to, but if you happen to take Florida, Florida. you might not get in that much trouble. But, I mean, him also conquering, you know, that, that area, you know, does earn him a lot of enmity from a lot of people. And I think that maybe brings us on to, you know, what's, it, what's another phrase from this era, the corrupt bargain of 1824? So... In the 1824 presidential election, it essentially comes down to between John Quincy Adams, the son of John Adams, Andrew Jackson and Henry Clay. And in the election itself, Jackson actually wins the majority of the electoral and popular vote, but he doesn't have enough to actually win the election. Okay, And this is the point where Clay agrees to pull out of the election, essentially, and his votes go to John Quincy Adams. Mm. Okay, now Clay is later made vice president. I think he, I think he's made uh, in Adams's cabinet, and Jackson says Secretary of State. Secretary of State. State. Sorry, yeah. yeah. Uh, corrupt bargain that Clay and Adams made this corrupt bargain to ensure that Jackson didn't get into the White House, and Jackson is a man to hold a grudge. He sort of, it's, I'm already getting another link to, you know, echoes of Richard Nixon here, who always harboured the grudge against, you know, the 1960 election being stolen from him in his eyes. So, yeah, you know, that link's coming back again. He comes back in 1828 yeah. and wins the election. And this is, just as he's won the election, it's around about the time his, his beloved wife dies. Mm -hmm. And this is, you know, a great tragedy for, for Jackson, just as he has his moment of greatest glory. Yeah, and I mean, like, Jackson blames guys like Clay. You know, and Clay's another frontiers guy. Like, I mean, he comes from Kentucky, you know, this is the sort of, you're there, you'd expect they get along not so much. But, mm -hmm. I mean, and, and Clay, I, I'm sorry, Jackson, you know, I think blames the rest of his life, the death of his wife, on people who spread stories about about, about Rachel, his but, wife. Besmirching yeah. her honour and yeah. her dignity and all that kind of thing. And he, he very much bl blames other people for, for, his, for her death. Yeah, but if, if we move away then from Jackson the man to Jackson the president, and... I mean, Andrew Jackson's presidency, we could go on about all the things that happened, you know, I mean, especially topics like Jacksonian democracy, you know, the, the nullification crisis, which we'll maybe touch on a tiny bit later. You know, a lot of stuff is going on during Jackson's presidency, but what we are going to focus on is the, is the Indian Removal Act. So lay it out for, for me and the audience in simple terms, what is the Indian Removal Act and what does it actually cause to happen? So in the United States itself, so and which is fundamentally the eastern part of what we now recognise in the United States, there are still uh, Native American tribes 
living within the borders of various various states and this is problematic for some people there is a rapidly expanding population there's rapidly expanding cultivation of land rapidly expanding industry all that thing so for many these native americans present a problem in that they are occupying land that could be better used for new white settlers for the expansion of american uh, economic power, all, the, all these kind of things. And it's often referred to as the removal of the five civilised tribes, the tribes who remained in these areas, the Creeks, the Seminoles, the Choctaws, the Cherokees and the Chickasaws. But Indian removal also refers, also affects tribes further north, like the Ottawa and the Chippewa, uh, in what's called the Old Northwest. So it's affecting kind of Indian tribes who are kind of in this eastern part of the United States. Uh, there's the economic problem, there's a the problem of land. There's also a question that they're not recognised as citizens and they exist as kind of sovereign nations within the boundaries of the United States. And this is a problem for many people. In a United States that's trying to maintain security, you've got these sovereign nations within your own boundaries. And again, for some like Jackson and many others, because of the Indian alliance with the British during the War of 1812, now, this kind of ignores the fact that there were Native Americans also allied with the United States during the War of 1812. They might be a conduit for further British influence. Because remember, the British are still on the North American continent, in Canada, in the Oregon Territory, that kind of stuff. So there's still British influence there. And there's a concern that this represents a security threat to the United States as well. So there's, there's economics, there's security, and there's also, to a certain extent, racism inherent within what's going on. But it's the plan to take these tribes and move them west of the Mississippi to the unorganized territory and to the, the further west. Move them out of the United States, essentially deporting them mm -hmm. to what is then foreign territory. Yeah, and deporting them harshly. I mean, the, the, tra the Trail of Tears is not called the Trail of Tears because, you know, it, it was in any way a fun experience for these North, uh, you know, sorry, North Americans, uh, these Native Americans have been it is an event where a lot die of pneumonia, you know, they're not treated particularly well. Um, and, you know, there's some unusually cruel punishments um, along the Trail of Tears. Well, I mean, there is, I mean, that's particular. I mean, the Ch Trail of Tears is particularly no you know, notable in the case of the Cherokee, yeah. uh, where the, the the name comes comes from. Uh, and yeah, there are, you know, cruel practices. There is not allowing for any kind of preparation. There's not proper support yeah. uh, for the tribes. Is it because you're asking people to remove hundreds of miles across hostile territory into completely different lands, places they're, they're not used to. Yeah, so I mean, you, I mean you've outlined that in a, you know, a wonderfully kind of balanced way um, there in terms of how you presented the Indian Removal Act. Um, but would you like to hear a terribly biased version on, on Andrew Jackson and the, and the, uh, the Indian Removal Act? Uh, go on then. I'm always in favour of, uh, of hearing about biased historiography. Okay, so... We're going to turn our attention to one historiographical take on Jackson's reasoning for the Indian Removal Act. And this is put forward by uh, Francis Prussia. Um, and he, he comes out with an article in the Journal of American History in 1969. And he's not a happy boy. He's not happy about the fact that Jackson's been portrayed as this horrible uh, demonic. Like he thinks historians have portrayed Jackson as just an Indian hater. And he calls it a devil theory of Andrew Jackson. Um, 
And he says, so I'll, I'll quote like his introduction, he says, in their hierarchy, Andrew Jackson has first place in terms of, you know, the devil theory. He is depicted primarily, if not exclusively, as a Western frontiersman and famous and a famous Indian fighter who was a zealous advocate of dispossessing the Indians and at heart an Indian hater. When he became president, so the story goes, he made use of his new power ruthlessly and at the point of a bayonet to force Indians from their ancestral homes in the east into desert lands west of the Mississippi, which were considered forever useless to the white man. So he's kind of staked out his position there that this is what he believes that the historiography is arguing, that, you know, Jackson uh, was was basically, you know, devil evil uh, in terms of his dealings with the Native Americans. And his kind of argument is on the basis that, in fact, Jackson was always, he says, he uses the word justice. He says that Jackson only ever dealt with Af uh, with Native Americans with justice. Um, he uses the story of how Jackson um, adopted a little boy called Lincoya um, what, during, a, during a battle in which he was massacring Indians. We, we, I, think, we, I think we need to point out that the reason Lincoya was an orphaned Native American mm. boy is because Jackson and his men had just massacred his family. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it was during a war time. You know, the, you know this wasn't... You know, but, there, but there was, there was massacres on both sides. You know, it, I mean, the whites win more of them because white Americans win more of them because they had generally have better, you know, weapons as well. But there is that that incident with Lincoya and the adoption of Lincoya is, is sometimes used as an example of of Jackson's care uh, for for Native Americans. When really the way he talks about Lincoya is not really a father son kind of relationship. There's many instances where people will say, "Oh, but you know, Jackson punished officers under his command for." For you know, killing Native Americans for committing murder and all that kind of thing, I would argue that that's less to do with any particular liking for Native Americans, more to do with Jackson as a military commander, his ideas of military discipline. Yeah, that's what that that's what that's all about. But and I mean, yeah, and in I mean, like John Meacham, another who did the Jackson biography just recently in two thousand and eight, he says, you know, Jackson said when he adopted adopted Lincoln, he's like. He is a savage, but one that fortune has thrown in my in my hands, and you know sent him back to his house with his wife and everything. And Lacoy unfortunately actually died at the age of fifteen. But um, yeah, so I mean the use of the word savage gives you an idea of how how Jackson viewed viewed Indians at this time. But back to Prussia. So Prussia is essentially trying to rehabilitate Jackson, and in doing it, he, he outlines the fact that the Jackson had four choices with Indian removal. He argues, one, Jackson could have done nothing which would have allowed the Indians to have been destroyed by white settlers who had superior military power and surrounded them and eventually forced them out or perhaps killed all of them. He argues that, uh, Prussia notes that there could have been rapid assimilation of, of Indians into the, the kind of framework of American society, but this wasn't going to happen. He argues that there could have been independent, you know, kind of enclaves, small enclaves of Indians could have been settled and they could be protected, protected by the federal government. But this wasn't realistic. And he says the fourth option, removal, was the most humanitarian of all. Um, so there you have it. Andrew Jackson is a humanitarian. Now, I know you've read Prussia as well. Is there any fault either with his, his logic that you see here? Well, I think there's a major problem in that many of these tribes who were removed from the eastern lands to the west were assimilating. 
I mean, I mean, that's a fundamental point. They were adopting the ways of the white settlers. They were taking on cultural practices. They were taking on education. They were often taking on the religion. They even had slaves. Of the colonists. They, you know, they, they were going full on South and Southern Americana. You yeah, know, some they, of them were even slaveholders. <laughs> uh, so they were becoming part of the United States. They were adopting the ways of the people that surrounded them. Uh, so the argument that... You know, we'd like, oh, they could be assimilated. Well, they were assimilating. I mean, some of them were. Yeah, I mean, I'm glad you brought that up because, I mean, Mary Young uh, wrote a, a kind of an excellent piece on the Cherokee Nation, um, which, in interestingly, she entitled the Mirror of the Republic, mm. i.e. to try and show, you know, this this was a nation, that the Cherokees, that were, at, that were properly assimilating, you know, and she wrote this in 1981, about 12 years after Prussia, and she notes that, you know, in the early 19th century, the United States government, through its own agents and through federally subsidized missionaries who were going down into, you know, the areas kind of Georgia, North Carolina, where Cherokees existed, you know, they undertook this effort to change the economy, the institutions and the culture of the Cherokees. And by the 1830s, substantial change had occurred. You know, they had, as you mentioned, schools, churches, plantations, slaves written language, newspaper, a constitution. I was about to yeah. say that. They were adopting constitutions, they were adopting laws that mirrored, as Young comments. They even disenfranchised people that were there of African descent. You know, they were trying to fit in. Yeah, they were really trying to fit in. But um, no, I think Young makes a very persuasive argument in that regard. Yeah, and she basically makes the thing that the exact moment this has happened, you know, the exact moment they've got this assimilation is when Andrew Jackson steps in and then the Removal Act is passed in 1830. Um, and, you know, after the, I mean, after the, 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 the passage of the Indian, uh, the Indian Removal Act, I mean, that isn't the end of it. You still, like, Jackson sort of, him and his War Department get a small group of people who weren't actually representative of the Cherokee Nation to sign this Treaty of New Dakota, which mm. basically sort of agrees to what the Indian Removal Act has said, and, you know, uh, the Cherokee seed a lot of vast tracts of land. Um, and this eventually leads to the kind of Trail of Tears in 1838. And Young argues quite, you know, persuasively that the, the Trail of Tears symbolised the tragic destruction by the United States of its own cherished work in getting these people to assimilate. So that seems to take care of one of Prussia's points, that... You know, rapid assimilation was was uh, was possible, and also, I mean, he he says that it wouldn't be possible to you know view the, the independent enclaves, i.e., a sovereign nation within the United States. Well, the Supreme Court said it was. Mm. You know, the Supreme Court, I think it's the Cherokee Nation versus the United States. You know, the Supreme Court agrees. You know, yes, they are a domestic dependent nation. And yet Jackson just kind of goes, yeah, but I don't really want to well, listen I mean, to that. It may be apocryphal, but, but Jackson essentially goes, well, the Supreme Court has made its decision, now let them enforce it. And essentially the president, and I think this is interesting about Jackson's presidency. You know, when we often think about Richard, let's come back to Richard Nixon again. I never thought we'd be talking about him that much. In this. Nixon <laughs> is often referred to as the imperial presidency. And Jackson is almost taking that point of view. The president... All authority is vested in him. You know, regardless of your ideal of you know, Jackson and common man and democracy and all that kind of thing, that's a, well, I, the Supreme Court has made a decision I don't like. Okay, let them go ahead and try and enforce it. Yeah, and I mean, the fact that the Supreme Court agree, this kind of comes into another point. I mean, one of the things that 
the Meacham, uh, sorry, not Meacham, the uh, Prussia outlays is the fact that one of the other options was the Indians would have just been destroyed. But you look back at this time, it wasn't like all white Americans were frothing in the mouth to try and like you know get rid of Af- uh, of Indians from their land. I mean, uh, if anything, the majority of white sentiments were probably quite ambivalent. I mean, you even had guys that would that would stand up, that were standing up in the House and in the Senate arguing like this is inhumane. You know, I mean, they're quite interesting. Like there was a senator called Theodore Freelinghausen. And just for anyone who thinks Americans don't have aristocrats, you know, like legacies that go on, this guy, we, you know, his family are still senators and House representatives in, by the 1960s. And he says, you know, there's no argument that can shake the political maxim that where the Indian always has been, he enjoys an absolute right still to be in the free exercise of his own modes of thought, government and conduct. So he's even saying that we shouldn't be forcing them to civilize. Mm. You know, they have rights to live however they want to live. You know, it's pretty enlightened stuff for the time. But perhaps easy for someone in New Jersey to say it. You know, if you, if you're on the border, if you're living there, then you're more than likely to be to be more in favor of Jackson's policy. I mean, I mean, yeah, I suppose. But I mean, the thing is that you, we're not talking about Native Americans on the frontier, preventing kind of saying, you know. You know, shooting at settlers with muskets and all that kind of thing. We're talking about tribes who are living within the United States, within the settled part of the United States. And even then, this idea that you know, white settlers, and this is looking forward into the, the, the 1840s and the idea of manifest destiny, the idea that Native Americans are constantly always trying to like shoot at settlers going west and wagon, tra- wagon trains is false. It's, it comes from popular culture, it comes from the Western and all that kind of thing. In many cases, the Plains Indians and Indians out on the frontier aided the, the settlers as they were travelling west, helped them to cross rivers, gave them food, because many of them, many of the settlers were incompetent urbanites. Yeah. didn't have a clue what they were doing. So, but these are kind of like the civilised tribes within, they are existing within the United States. They're, they're not out on the frontier predating against... Yeah, and it's also worth not, noting as well that you know, all tribes were different. You know, I mean, like, this is, you know, Native Americans aren't just one conglomerate law, glob of, like, you know, they are one group of people. And they are very different people. That's a good point to make because, we're yeah, we're not talking about... I mean, we refer to Native Americans because the government is treating them as... Yeah. As one or more. Exactly. Class. But we're talking about, you know, 500 nations. Yeah. You know, hundreds of languages, different cultural practices, different ways of life, different attitudes towards things. I mean, an incredibly diverse, you know, multi layered set of different cultures and societies. Yeah. I mean, so to kind of go go back to the, the Indian Removal Act, and, you know, for all Prussia's argument, and actually, we should cover one thing first, Malcolm. Um, could, now, for whether you believe in or agree with the, the kind of logic of Prussia's argument, there's a problem with it, isn't there? I mean, what, do you want to maybe outline that? There, there is a serious problem with, with Prussia's article. Now, let's make it clear, this is appearing in the Journal of American History. Yeah. This is one of the, perhaps the foremost journal of American history. Mm-hmm. Incredibly well-respected, well-regarded, very high standards. The problem with Prussia's article. Now, he is an eminent historian, not arguing with that, but his use of evidence 
is intensely problematic. I think there's maybe a useful lesson for any undergraduate. Definitely. Prusha presents an image of Jackson as one who cares for Native Americans, who is doing his best for Native Americans, all that kind of thing. All his evidence for this comes from Jackson. Jackson's letters to other politicians, Jackson's letters to military officials, Jackson's statements in front of Congress, Jackson's speeches, Jackson's State of the Union addresses, all these kind of things. It's Jackson's words. Does Jackson ever say bad words about Jackson, just out of interest? Uh, not as far as I'm aware. N not, not in Prusha's article, anyway. Not in Prusha's article, anyway. So there's an evidential problem there, in that the use of evidence is very selective. And of course, Jackson, we're not going to find a letter where Jackson writes to, you know, Henry Clay. In the unlikely event, he wrote to Henry Clay again, mm -hmm. other than to send him death threats or something. Yeah. So, you know, dear Henry, uh, I hate Indians. I would like to see them all dead. Or, you know, he's, that is not going to happen. Yeah. Of course, he's going to talk about himself in, you know, almost, you know, glowing terms about what he thinks he's doing, his own self image. Yeah, and I mean, to, to kind of run the point home, I mean, you're, you're you know, now a doctor, you've just passed your, you know, Viva panel, you know, I hopefully have mine in the next few months. If we tried to rock up with this as our thesis, we would be laughed out, wouldn't we? You know, like maybe go away, make two years of corrections where you actually include sources other than Jackson. I don't think a PhD supervisor would allow that to fly. Yeah. The in terms of that use of evidence, that that wouldn't get past a, a PhD supervisor. But, but in the same, to come back to what we were talking about in the first podcast, probably Richard Hofstadter wouldn't get by a PhD panel either. No, no, no. So I mean, you can still get you can get interesting history out of out of the out of these type of works, but you have to be aware of the restrictions. Yes, absolutely. Um, um so th I think I think we've covered that the, the kind of key debate. I mean. One of the things I wanted to point out at the end, and I think this kind of points to what the view um, of of Native Americans uh, at this time is, you know, the fact that this is allowed to be written down. You know, Freelinghausen, you know, his sort of defence, I think, is a bit of an outlier in terms of how passionate he's, or they, well, they can be who they like. I, I generally don't think that was probably how the mo most most white Americans of the time believed. And the central crux of the Indian Removal Act, I think, is Section 3. Um, and it says basically that, you know, the, the certain lands that they're, they're, they're shoving the, 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 you know, the Native Americans out to, probably the ones in modern-day Oklahoma, they guarantee the lands to the Indians, but say if, they, if the Indians become extinct or abandoned the same, then it will revert to the, U, the U.S., it's quite incredible that those words were written down. If the entirety of Native Americans become instinct, uh, extinct, we'll just take the land. You know, that implies that there might be a day pretty soon where they might be extinct. Well, I mean, I think there's, I mean, that's a, a fair point. And there's, there's a good point about the entire Indian Removal Act. I think the historian Ronald Sachs talks about the, the four key benefits claimed for Native Americans during the process of the Indian Removal Act. And he's talking, his analysis looks at the Chippewa and the Ottawa in the Old Northwest. And he said the four benefits are they will now have fixed boundaries to their lands outside the United States, protection from predation by white settlers, whether that is taking their land away or kind of like supplying them with alcohol and all that kind of thing. Uh, they'll be allowed self-government uh, and opportunities to become, and I'm doing air quotes here, civilised. Uh, the trouble is, as Sats points out, and I, I quote, 
However, the predicted benefits do not come to pass. If the executors of the policy believed in these assumptions, their assumptions proved erroneous for the Indians of the Old Northwest. The, Old Northwest. the results were, in any analysis, disastrous. Because what happens with Indian removal, regardless of the intentions behind it, you end up with a situation where men, women and children are being driven at musket and bayonet point across hostile terrain to land that is completely different from their ancestral lands where they have been living for many generations and is completely unsuited. It's another blow, to, yeah, to, it's another blow to the ideals of which the United States was you know, founded on. Exactly. I mean, this is a fundamentally, it goes against ideas of kind of constitutional democracy, of the Declaration of Independence, all of the, the glorious sentiments that are espoused during, during the revolution and during the constitutional period. This is a, for want of a better term, and it's a somewhat emotive term, for the Cherokee especially, it's a death march. Mm -hmm. 4,000 people die on the Trail of Tears. Mm -hmm. These are not small numbers of people who are dying because of this, yeah, this policy. And I, and I think it's important at this point where we maybe draw the kind of legacy of Jackson's removal policy. Because this isn't the end. If anything, this is, you know, the end of the beginning of how, you know, Americans were, you know, white Americans view, like treated, in the, uh, you know, Native Americans. I think, well, there's also you know, another point to be made that some would argue that Jackson had, his intentions were good, but he just didn't see what would happen. Now, I would argue Jackson's a frontiersman. He's, he's a tough man. He knows what life is like out on the frontier. He knows that there's corruption within the system that is going to allow these people to move. Indian agents and the army and all that kind of thing. That money for blankets and food and just the simple necessities of life is going to be siphoned off. He either knows this and doesn't care or he's a moron, in the boldest <laughs> terms. I mean, yeah. there's grey areas in there, but either he knows this is going to happen and doesn't care, or he's woefully, you know, just ignorant of the actual realities. And I don't think Jackson is ignorant of the realities of what these people are going to go have to go through. Yeah. But, I mean, you're, you're right. This kind of, in many ways, sets the groundwork in the 19th century for the even bigger disasters that are going to befall yeah. Uh, Native America as the United States expands west. Yeah, I mean, during his time, I think, one, one of the best, the, I think Meacham sums up well, that Jackson was an exaggerated example of the prevailing white view. That's what Meacham says, you know, he's on or on the extreme edge of the mainstream. He's not completely outside the mainstream, you know, he's, there are views there that are happening. And if we move it forward... Oh, but Jackson does have the advantage, he may be an outlier, but he's president. Yeah. He's in charge. He's the commander in chief, and he gets re-elected. So it's hardly like yeah. you know they call the whites that like this is the one thing you know everybody's like oh well Jackson passed the Indian mm -hmm. Removal Act we can't possibly re-elect him in eighteen thirty two. You made the comment a couple of minutes ago about uh, you know if you kind of move west and kind of Indian lands and what might happen in the future, and you know the Indian Removal Act, as you said, talks about you know this is you know Native American land until they might be extinct, but. That doesn't last very long, does it? Because there's something no. else that comes up. Exactly. I mean, you have, I mean, in the middle of the Civil War, you know, the Homestead Act will be passed. The Homestead Act, which basically says, go west and we shall give you land. You know, like, if you, if you go west, you settle land, you improve the land, 
you're an American citizen, um, you live there for five years, you apply to the government, we will grant you that land. You know, uh, quite a radical, you know, kind of pro uh, law at the time, although in many ways it doesn't unfold in quite those ideals. But implicit in that law is, yeah, we want the West. You know, they, that's, you know, because it's not like the government in 1862 don't know that there's Native Americans there. And they will continue push, pushing West all the way through until Native Americans dwindle to the numbers that, you know, the small numbers that they are today. I mean, a few enclaves survive in the East, like I think it's the, the Iroquois, I don't, don't quite know how to pronounce that, sorry, in, in New York. And there's even some Cherokees like survive in North, Car North Carolina. But essentially, you know, this, the Indian Removal Act, you know, is pressing on the accelerator in a um, way, I would th at least that's my opinion. Yeah, and know? if you can just say, you know, you, you talk about the Homestead Act, but I mean, prior to that, in 1845, is the first kind of espousal in a New York newspaper of the idea of manifest destiny. Ah, yes. The West is there to be conquered and taken by the United States. Because this is, you know, the West is, at this point, unorganised territory or foreign land. The idea of manifest that it is America's destiny to conquer the West and who's standing in the way. It just so happens there's many kind of like, you know, plains Native Americans, but it's also the tribes that were sent out west of the, the Mississippi by the Indian Removal Act. And you start seeing the wagon trains going across yeah. across the West. And then you get stuff like the you know, 1848 California gold rush. Yeah. Stuff like that where people are, you know, there's not a tide of people going across the plains, but there are many more people. So based that on Andrew Jackson west. for me, is he a game changer? Is, is Jack, because Jackson kind of exists in the middle of this gap between the revolutionary generation and, and the Civil War. You know, is Jackson just a kind of colourful character um, for historians to chat about in between, you know, these two kind of great events and, you know, important generations? Or is he, or is he, is, is he more than that? Is he a game changer? He's a, he's a powerful president. He recognises the power of the presidency. Uh, he recognises the... One the, of the few who do in the 19th century. Most presidents are just kind of ceremonial a lot of the time. Well, his ability to stand up to you know, the Supreme Court, for example. The mm -hmm. idea of an imperial presidency. Uh, the idea of, kind of the, both the, in, the internal security of the United States. You know, fundamental questions surrounding the Indian Removal Act. And he is a powerful figure. Very interesting figure. And I certainly think he you know, lays the groundwork for what happens with Native America in the rest of the 19th century, but also this idea of Jacksonian democracy and ideas of participation and all these kind That's of things. That's a whole other podcast. That's though. a whole other yeah. podcast, the Jacksonian democracy. But anyway, so to kind of to, to finish on a, a kind of lighter note, um, now we, we, we kind of sent out a tweet um, that's uh, from at H2 podcast, just to plug that. Um, we're asking for any questions from, from any listeners and we, we got a question from, I think it was Francesca, and uh, she wanted to know, for those of you that watch The West Wing, and it is my favourite television show of all time, hence my delight this question was asked, there's an episode where the character Leo introduces uh, and Andrew Jackson's big block of cheese day um, as, as a sort of symbol of how the White House should open its doors to all kind of uh, all comers and in Leo's story, you know that big block of cheese. Andrew Jackson sat it in the White House for his presidency, and anyone could come in and eat it. And it was like a symbolism of Jacksonian democracy. Malcolm, is that true or is it false? That story. It is true. Andrew Ish. Jackson did have a giant block of cheese in the White House. Uh, so did Thomas Jefferson, actually. Oh, really? Jefferson had a big block of cheese. Uh, as well, but that's that's a side point. Okay. It was actually given to him by a guy called Colonel Thomas Meacham, 
of New York. He was a dairy farmer, okay, and he sensed this sent this giant cheddar. It was about a meter and a half across, mm -hmm. and about maybe two thirds of a meter thick. So it's a giant wheel of cheddar, and weighed over half a ton. So this is a big yeah. cheese. It's going to give you a lot of crazy dreams. Big yeah, cheese, yeah. literally. And it had all these patriotic inscriptions on it. It's very difficult to consume that amount of cheese. And it hung about the White House for quite a while. Well, this is an era before pizza. Yeah. Apparently, apparently, it was still hanging around by 1837. And imagine a two-year-old giant block yeah. of cheese, what that's going to be like. My, my favourite part of the story is the fact that it's Van Buren that comes in after Jackson and he can't get rid of the smell of cheese from the White House. You yeah. know what I mean? Right, so there you go. I mean, it is partially true. I mean, it, what Jackson just kind of, you know, sorry Malcolm, I'll let you finish Can the I just story add, here. they actually solved the cheese problem. And this is the part that's true Appar as well. Apparently by 1837, uh, he decides to have one final public reception before he leaves office in the White House. On one hand, this is part of a tradition with Jackson of inviting people into the White House of being kind of represented the common man and all these kind of things. On the other hand, it helped him get rid of this giant cheese mountain. Uh, so he has some estimates say upwards of 10,000 visitors come to the White House and apparently, according to some sources, consume the wheel of cheese within two hours. I just can't imagine what a cheese that had been kept in a non-air conditioned Washington DC, you know, that's a swamp basically, yeah. like type place, what that would have been like. But um so thanks again for the question, Francesca. So next time we're gonna be looking at the the Civil War, you know, we're gonna pick and part certain part of it, but what, what I'm gonna finish with a kind of thing from Jackson's presidency that I think outlines Jackson as an individual quite well, but also kind of shows the kind of the, the winds that are coming in terms of, you know, the secession that's going to happen. And funnily enough, it's uh, South Carolina, you know, Jackson's vice president, John John Calhoun, resigns um, over what is called the nullification crisis. And uh, during, during kind of the erupts during Jackson's second term. And there's a point where Jackson's sitting in the White House and basically South Carolina is thinking of seceding on the base or it, it basically wants to say that it doesn't have to obey the federal laws that it doesn't want to, which kind of, you know, breaks the point of a union. Mm. Um, and Jackson's sitting there and mulling over and he's like, I expect to hear a civil war has broken out soon. And, you know, and, and he's talking to people and he's musing out loud about hanging Southern leaders. Remember the fact that Jackson is basically a Southerner himself but he had decided to fight for the Union. And Jackson concluded by telling the person, if that happens, I will lead the army myself. Um, Good old Andrew Jackson, eh? Irascible is the adjective I've decided. On. A leopard never changes his spots. Exactly. I mean, the nullification crisis is essentially all about tariffs and taxation and all that kind of thing. Hence why we're not going to talk about it, Hence because that's not awfully gonna, dull. We're so, not going to talk uh, about it. What was, so we're just going to finish there. So thanks again for listening. Um, and we shall uh, speak to you again in two weeks' time when we chat about the Civil War. So thanks again for joining us, Malcolm. And goodbye. Cheerio.